This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, let's talk about G7. Uh, and this is fascinating, of course, simply because what has happened with Trump and tariffs in the world. Uh, the G7 leaders, of course, meeting in Quebec today and tomorrow. Donald Trump has been uh, tweeting like a madman and basically saying that um, everybody's being incredibly unfair to uh, the United States and to uh, the trade practices where the rest of us have an advantage. Let's bring in Simon Polymar, uh, Polymar, Research Assistant, Center for International Governance Innovation, and is with us now. Simon, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. That's a pleasure, Scott. What is it going to be like to be a fly on the wall of this meeting? Uh, does Donald Trump care if he has the respect of these people in this room? Yeah, that's a great question. It could be terrifically entertaining. Uh, it, it does seem that President Trump does care what others think about him. But, you know, if we're, if we're very honest here, it seems that he has a preference for those who will praise him unconditionally, uh, those who will go out of their way to laud his accomplishments and, uh, and gloss over differences with him. Um, and that appeals to him. He doesn't seem to like to be told when he's wrong or someone thinks he's wrong or there is profound disagreement. He seems to prefer to be praised, lauded, and he likes to get along with people. So, you know, what we saw last week with finance ministers uh, meeting before the G7, we saw six finance ministers um, line up and fairly roundly, you know, denounce uh, Trump's tariff policy and tell Steve Newton, the, the Treasury Secretary, that he has to take that message back to his boss and that this is going to be uh, a sore point in Charlevoix. That being said, uh, tariffs front and center. I mean, uh, obviously Trudeau hosting this, so he gets to pick the agenda. Will that be hijacked? Will this all be, will this all be about tariffs? Yeah, it won't all be about tariffs, but uh, that's going to be a big part of the discussions. Uh, the official agenda for the the G7 it, it fits very much with um, Prime Minister Trudeau's broader what he calls you know his progressive agenda. So some of the things that uh, the Prime Minister wanted to to discuss at the summit were things like um, gender equality, climate change, uh, action, environmental action on uh, on on saving the world's oceans. I mean things that are laudable, important, um, arguably. Uh, existentially important in the case of climate change. But these are all things that are, you know, long-term challenges that are off in the distance. The fact is, you know, Donald Trump's government has withdrawn from a major arms control agreement with Iran in the last month or so, imposed uh, tariffs on allies, has uh, praised the strongman leader in North Korea, and then before jumping on a plane, suggested that Vladimir Putin be reinvited to the G7, and, and those are really going to, to dominate discussions. Because right now, I think there's very much a feeling that the, the G7, which overlaps heavily with the European Union and NATO, is in disarray. Uh, does Donald Trump care whether, uh, obviously these leaders, these allies, have lots to say in regard to uh, the world economy and, and tariffs and, and so on and so forth? Does he care as much for their respect as he does for the respect of his base? Is this all playing to the base back home and less to do what's happening with what's happening in that room? 
you know, I think uh, this year compared to last year, domestic politics certainly matters a lot more. You know, we are, of course, and, you know, thousands of people have pointed this out before, but we are looking at what could be a very uh, hard to predict midterm election cycle in November. Uh, we shall recall that uh, the Trump administration promised that they would have NAFTA renegotiated well before the midterm elections, well before the Mexican presidential elections in July, that that would be a relatively simple task. And right now, I mean, you know, Donald Trump's popularity ratings in the United States, I mean, they're better than they were. You know, for a while they were abysmal. Now they're not abysmal. They're just not great. Nevertheless, we're looking at a very energized Democratic Party. Uh, we're looking at um, uh, an ongoing investigation into you know, what the Trump campaign did with Russia or didn't do with Russia. It's looming over him perpetually. Um, being able to go on the campaign trail and stump for Senate candidates, stump for uh, members of the House of Representatives, and point to a long list of things that, you know, we've done, promises we've fulfilled, even if they're bad promises, even if uh, tariffs, for example, are going to hurt some Trump voters, being able to point to them and say, look, we're following through, we're doing this, we're standing up for the United States, playing up that story the United States has been taken advantage of, tapping into that, I think a lot of it this year has to do with that far more than it does with the actual policy issues that are going to be discussed in Quebec. All right, Simon. So we all know what Trump's character's like. Uh, it's easy to look at Trump and go see and paint him as the bully and this, that, and the other, and the big bad boogeyman and everything that he, you know, every criticism he rightly deserves due to his own his own uh, making, of course. Uh, that being said, we've had, you know, a few professors on here, economic professors and such, that, that will say that, you know, Trump's right. He's got a point here. Uh, we're, we're putting tariffs on things like dairy and so on and so forth, and, and it's not reciproc- reciprocal that, that, that they, they are getting the, the advantage. And obviously the tweet from Trump, please tell Prime Minister Trudeau and President Macron that they are charging the U.S. massive tariffs and creating non-monetary barriers. barriers. Canada keeps our farmers and others out. Look forward to seeing them uh, tomorrow. Does he have a point? Well, you have to be really quite precise when you talk about this stuff. Um, when it comes to the countervailing tariffs that Canada has imposed on the United States for their steel and aluminum tariffs, yeah, absolutely. Some of them are not on American steel and aluminum, but on other products. And they are designed to change the president's calculus. They're designed to affect exports from parts of the country that support him to remind them that, you know, putting tariffs on a, a trading partner has consequences. That trade wars have consequences. They're not painless. They're not good for anybody. So those are meant to hurt. You know, when we get into very specific issues, there are some long-standing disputes between Canada and the United States about, you know, the dairy industry in Canada, which is under a supply management program, Mm -hmm. which guarantees a certain, you know, level of prices for Canadian dairy farmers. And part of that means restricting dairy imports to Canada. Likewise, uh, Softwood lumber is a disagreement about basically about how trees are priced here, and you know, right. do lumber companies here get you know uh, uh, an advantage over American competitors? But Canadians can point to the United States and point to all sorts of agricultural subsidies in some sectors. That and there are enough little you know irritants on both sides of the relationship where no, it's not truly perfectly free trade that we have with the United States. There are little distortions. 
But in the big picture, you know, in terms of dollars and cents, how much these industries are worth and whatnot, compared to the overall economies, they're tiny. And a big blunt instrument like this, like slapping a, you know, across-the-board tariff on a, a large industry under fairly flimsy pretenses, nobody believes the uh, national security argument, it doesn't actually, you know, get at the issue. If the United States has big problems with the way that uh, Canadian dairy industry is regulated, then talk about that. Right. Don't tear, put tariffs on a completely unrelated yeah. industry under... So it's a lot of it's a lot of smoke and mirrors, like burning down the White House. <laughs> you could say that, yeah. <laughs> um, are America are Americans behind Donald Trump's tariffs? Will this help more Americans than it will hurt, or vice versa? Yeah, that's something that's best figured out with uh, you know time will time will tell. Uh, certainly, amongst the business community, those who, for example import steel, you know, raw steel or semi-finished steel products from Canada or uh, elsewhere to turn that into value-added manufacturers, they're against it because the the economics, you know, are are pretty simple. The United States, either there isn't a a steel mill that produces the right product in the United States or it's too expensive and that, you know, in order to make, for example, uh, a good example would be pressure vessels, you know, uh, that require a very specific grade of steel, certain size of pipe, et cetera. They can't get it domestically. This is going to hurt them. Their prices will go up. Their customers are going to have to react to those those price increases in one way or another. And, you know, that could mean declining profit margins, could mean layoffs. But the problem is this stuff takes time. People expect they see, oh, the United States has imposed tariffs. Well, you know, we're going to see an instantaneous, you know, increase in prices in the United States. Well, it's not true. Even if the uh, the manufacturing company that buys you know Canadian steel, even if their costs go up immediately, they may have contracts you know for the next six months at a certain price level. It could take time for that to follow through, take time for those price increases to bleed through, and take time for people to feel them. So it's it's too early to really get a sense of how much tariffs are affecting you know the average American, how they feel about Donald Trump. But we can say, you know, like anecdotally, um, business community, they're pretty frustrated with this. Uh, everybody knows uh, how Donald Trump operates. You don't have to read The Art of the Deal to figure that out anymore. Uh, always coming in with the negative, being divisive, predicting the worst. And, you know, I'm going to blow the whole thing up, whether it's NAFTA or North Korea, it doesn't matter. Um, that being said, how would the other G6 prepare for this meeting? Would they talk to each other? Are they on a common front? What are those meetings going to be like? Will they, uh, will they be cordial? Would they, will they be adversarial? How are these meetings going to shake down? What's the mood going to be like in that room? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. I mean, some of the predictions and some of the, the things that have been hinted at here and there in the media from various sources is that you know, the leaders here, they're going to be willing to tell the American president that, you know, these, these policies, they're not only frustrating, but they're, you know, they're economically harmful. They're hurting Americans. You're hurting our citizens. And it's it's undermining trust. And it's, it's utterly unnecessary. And we don't want it to affect other parts of our relations. But if it keeps up, it could. Now, the things you have to remember, when leaders actually sit down, 
this is this is politics. This is them talking the big picture, broadly speaking. They're not getting into the nitty gritty of policy. That's already been done. Well, Donald you know, Trump has said, even with his meeting in regard to Kim Jong Un, uh, you know, I haven't really prepared for it much. It's there's nothing to prepare for. It's all about attitude. Is that the same thing here? Is he just going to walk in and say, it doesn't matter what you think. Our economy is ten times bigger than yours, and what we say goes. I'm the king. I mean, yes and no, and in some ways it's not remotely the same thing, because the G7 summit, we've seen months of preparatory meetings where people who work on very specific policy issues or, you know, they're, they're civil servants first and they're not politicians at all, they sit down, they hash out, you know, what do we need to discuss? That's all been done, even as we saw it last week with the, the finance ministers, a lot of whom are politicians. Nevertheless, it seems like they got into some fairly detailed discussions about tariffs. So... All those discussions have been there. Now it's time to see, you know, what can be agreed to, what can't be. And, you know, push comes to shove. The president's both the ability to say, you know, I'm the biggest person on the block. You have to listen to me. It's not going to really work that well in this context because, you know, these are, these are six other countries that are more or less on the same page. They show a unified front. North Korea, none of that preparatory work, at least not in a substantive way, substantive way has occurred. So, President Trump walking in, it's not even clear what him, he and Kim are going to talk about yet. They've swung from, Trump has swung from talking about, you know, we're going to get a complete, you know, package to address all of these issues to, you know, maybe we'll just get to know each other and lay the groundwork for further talks to, no, we're really going to try to, you know, hash out a peace deal. We're not going to hash out an end to the Korean War in a couple of days at a resort in Singapore. So, it's, you know, he still has that advantage that he has the biggest economy in the world, biggest armed forces, most diplomats, etc. But not having done that homework, it's going to be a, a challenge. So uh, come Monday, what, what, what do you think the big story out of this G7 summit is going to be, especially in regard to Trump and his prickliness, for the lack of a better word? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of outcomes there and that we should you know, think about. You know, one was what um, Emmanuel Macron, uh, president of France, threatened uh, over Twitter, which was that, you know, we understand that President Trump doesn't mind being isolated. Well, we don't mind signing a six-party, you know, declaration or or announcement at the end of the the summit rather than a seven-country one. I mean, we're willing to, you know, come to an agreement on some issues without the United States. And Macron, everybody thought the president liked quite much. So that's one possibility. Another one is that perhaps Justin Trudeau will speak on behalf of the G7. And instead of seeing the normal communique, you know, commitments to work on this together, on that together, to move forward, reconvene at so-and-so a time, et cetera, it will just be Justin Trudeau saying, you know, these are the discussions we have. They were good discussions. Of course, we have differences inside this group. But, you know, there is a, a very real possibility that we might come out of this G7 summit without, you know, the usual, the usual announcement that, Everything is fine. We all agree. We're all working together. We might see a, a downgraded version of that, which doesn't bode well for the future. Does does Justin Trudeau have an advantage over the other leaders in the G7? You know, it's it's a good question. I mean, you know, maybe some of your your listeners will remember this term, but you know, during the Cold War, people would talk about Kremlinology, where you try to see. You know, who's standing with the Soviet leader in Red Square watching a military parade? You know, who's not there? What's going on? 
I feel like we do that a little bit today with the, the Trump administration. We try to read the tea leaves. People look at, you know, well, you know what, what's Donald Trump's body language like today? Who's with him on the announcement? Who's not there? I mean, Justin Trudeau, he seems to like Justin Trudeau because Trudeau's a handsome guy. He's well-spoken. He looks like what Donald Trump thinks. And he's popular. He's a good guy to hit your, you hit your wagon he's, to. He's immensely popular uh, in Canada and in the United States. So does Trudeau have an, an advantage there? Well, a lot of analysts seem to think that, yeah, all things being equal, Trudeau is handsome, he's charismatic, he looks good, and when Donald Trump meets with him and, and the Prime Minister says nice things about Donald Trump, some of that rubs off on Donald Trump. So there might be an advantage there. But nonetheless, I mean, if the Prime Minister is doing his job correctly the next couple of days, he's going to have to tell Donald Trump some things that he doesn't want to hear. And that, you know, that, that risks invoking the man's wrath, and that could change his views. So, you know, Trudeau's style, image, popularity may help him, but only up to a certain point. Because when you have to tell people the truth that this is not working, this is destructive, there are going to be consequences, then perhaps some of that advantage wears off. What about the other G6? Uh, are they frustrated? Are they angry? Are they, how do they stop, could this get personal? I mean, could this end up in a food fight and conflict by the time it's over? Yeah, well, the impression we get is that, you know, particularly the, the, the Brits, the, the French and the Germans are quite frustrated. I mean, uh, Macron, Emmanuel Macron is, you know, encountering some troubles at home. He's perhaps not being as successful as he hoped to be um, in implementing his domestic agenda, but nonetheless, um, he's still projecting a, a fairly confident uh, persona overseas. And like I noted earlier, he he tweeted an uncharacteristically um, direct and acerbic you know, threat to the president that we can come to agreements without you. Likewise, uh, British uh, government has dismissed some of the Trump government's arguments for tariffs as simply absurd. The Germans are, the relationship between Angela Merkel and Donald Trump is famously uh, not good. Uh, do they respect Donald Trump, or are they just putting up with him? And, and does it does it matter if they respect him? It can matter. It depends on the context. But I would say right now, I think there is a feeling that this is something that needs to be managed. Whether they personally respect him or not, yeah. the United States is still the linchpin of NATO, still an incredibly important trading partner. And there's not a lot of there's not a lot of wiggle room here. Not a lot of wiggle room, and the vast majority of Americans working in the civil service, working in politics, are strongly in favor of good relations with their allies. And that there is a feeling that this too shall pass. It just hopefully won't do too much damage as it takes it, as it runs its course. So what do you think we're going to be talking about on Monday in regard to this meeting? Well, uh, you know, Monday, it's going to certainly be overshadowed by the Kim-Trump summit, which, you know... Mm. President Trump is leaving the G7 early in order to make it to Singapore um, with enough time that he feels he needs. So there is already an impression that Trump has sort of, you know, downgraded the G7 as unimportant and that he would he would give priority to uh, Kim Jong-un. And what does that say that, you know, basically, hey, guys, I'd love to sit and chat about all those world social issues, but I got bigger fish to fry. You guys go ahead. I'm taking off to something real big. Yeah, it, it reconfirms, I think, on the, the, the quiet opinions of a lot of people in these governments that this isn't 
a U.S. government that ultimately we're going to be able to work with on the really big issues. This is a matter of maintaining the relationship, doing what we can, making sure 90% of it works as intended. And, you know, perhaps if we do have to, you know, work as the G6 plus one for the next couple of years, then so be it. Hmm. No need to burn any bridges. But if the Americans, if this, if this administration is not going to make this a priority, it's best to not expend too much energy trying to uh, trying to keep them happy. All right, Simon Palomar has been with us, Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. A pleasure, Scott. You too. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots of chatter, of course, in regard to Hamilton's waterfront. I always joke, since this renaissance uh, started, uh, anywhere downtown, anywhere in the Hammer, if you haven't been there in two weeks, go back again, because you'll sit there at an intersection intersection, and you'll think, what's different here? Something's happened. Something's different here. Something's grown. I, I don't know what it is. Was that there before? And, and that's what we're really seeing or will see on the waterfront as well. It is a city in, uh, on the move, that's for sure. Uh, while council has yet to ratify the decision, a plan for Pier 8 has been chosen. To talk more about this, Bruce Kuabera is with us, partner at KPMG, and is with us now. Bruce, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. It's KPMB. What did I say? That's okay. You said KPMG. Uh, hang on a sec. <laughs> the accounting firm. K- oh, my goodness. KPMB. Yes, that's right. All right. So less accounting and more architectural, obviously. Sorry about that, Bruce. <laughs> Clearly, uh, that's why they've got a detail guy like you on this project and not me. So bring us up to date. Bring, bring folks in the city up to date. What stage are we at? What happened this week? Well, this week we were identified uh, by the city uh, as the preferred proponent for the redevelopment of Pier 8. And it was a competition that was both involving design and uh, finance. And uh, we're thrilled that we are in this position because now we enter a series of uh, negotiations with the city to really sort out uh, the details to go forward. So what does this mean in as far as a timeline? When will we see this thing start to actually take off? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the city has talked about, you know, a construction start next year. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of issues to be sorted out uh, with this site. And, uh, you know, we're, we're game and ready to go. And uh, we think we have a concept that uh, we, we really need to... to uh, engage the the city and the community with respect to how the first phase, let's say, uh, can really work. Um, but we're very, very keen on our concept and uh, are looking forward to working with the city to getting this going as soon as possible. To those who may not have seen a drawing or a plan, what are we talking about here? How is this, how is this uh, area going to change? I think it's going to be a remarkable transformation of Pier 8. Already the city has selected and is going forward with uh, the landscaping of the water's edge on the, um, the north and the east side. And, you know, the firm Forec uh, won that with uh, a scheme called uh, the Hammer. And what we're talking about is a series of streets and blocks that the city had developed and planned that would set up a series of blocks 
that would allow for development of those blocks. And so when we made our proposal, we were making our proposal within the framework of streets and blocks that the city had already laid out and approved. It's a kind of plan of subdivision. There's also a very interesting element, which is performing as uh, within the capacity of stormwater management and it runs east-west. So essentially, there are, you know, eight-ish blocks, eight, nine blocks of of development, and uh, they're all fantastic because, as you know, Pure 8 has water on three sides of it. So we've said uh, the plan is great because all streets lead to the water. That's a great line that I read in the, in the release. Elaborate on that and how important that is when you're developing areas such as this. Well, it means that there are lots of choices for people in terms of uh, their preferences of where to live on that site within that, let's say, mini grid of extended streets and blocks. And the scale of it is really, really good. I, that's what I really appreciate. So it means that you have choices of routes. I think that uh, people will be they, they're quite familiar with uh, the west side where Williams is and and and. and the, They've enjoyed skating on the rink. They've enjoyed walking along the water's edge. These are activities that lots of people know of already. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. I mean, the contact with the water, uh, the light, uh, the views out over the bay are are exceptional. They've always been there, but I think this development will accentuate that by having a living community that's mixed use that creates a greater sense of vibrancy and uh, uh, really creates a place where the community can form. I think that it's it's very exciting to be able to have a chance to do city building at this scale. It's rare, actually, uh, to get this opportunity. And it requires a lot of sensitivity. It requires a great process, which I think the city has really uh, managed extremely well. They said what they were going to do and they've, they've met every deadline. So, you know, so far so good. I, I talk know, about I, the I, pressure to get this right, Bruce, because again, you're talking about waterfront property. There's lots of examples of cities where they haven't done it right. How do you make sure you, you, you find that balance? Lots are cons- some are concerned about the density really increasing in that area. How important is it that, that these sort of studies are taken into account? Well, I, I think the, the planning that's been done to date prioritizes pedestrians and cyclists, and that's a good start. It, it prioritizes people living on the ground, which our scheme maximized. I mean, the one thing about living in the North End, where I grew up, I mean, it really is about the streets and 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 the scale of of, of and the measure of things, the cadence of things, and so. And the differentiation and the variety uh, in the urban fabric. So we were very concerned with that. And, you know, it's really about creating experience. And you need people. I mean, the, the whole issue, we didn't set the density, but I fully appreciate why the density was set at the level it was. Because you actually need people to sustain cafes and yeah. to have a sense of community and, and uh, uh, the, the potential to have neighbors and most of the buildings are mid-rise. There, there are no tall buildings on mm-hmm. in this development. And we try to capture the essence of the site, the city, uh, connectivity to the neighborhood, but also to make a connection to the universal condition, the global condition of waterfront development from Hamburg to uh, Sydney to uh, London. And we're looking at 
ways in which uh, the architecture could be responsive to the role of every block in that community. So no two buildings are the same in our scheme. I mean, it's amazing. We had such a good time developing it. It was a lot of uh, creative bursts. We have other architects. We got to curate the other blocks by choosing the architects who would work on it. We picked outstanding architects, uh, GH3, Supercool, and Omar Gandhi. And, you know, I hope they have a chance to really present publicly uh, to the community and to the city because it's really, really exciting at a design level. So, Bruce, for you, as you mentioned, you grew up in the North End. How long, how far do you go back where you could see a vision for the North End, where you could see a changing waterfront go from industry to what it is now? Wow, that's a, an epic saga of, of... You must uh, be very proud. Well, I am, but, you know, I, I did not... Um, I was on so many panels at the city about the revitalization of the waterfront in the downtown, and I've, I've spoken a lot about it because uh, there's something about Hamilton that I, I really like. There's a kind of grittiness. People talk about that, but there's an urbanity, and it's a kind of hmm. uh, proximity of things. So, so I'm all in on Hamilton, but you know I can't take credit for anything on the waterfront. I, I just remember hearing that they were rethinking the waterfront, and it was more around the marina on the west side of Pier 8, and it, it's it's quite beautiful, but it, but it wasn't really about city building. It wasn't really about building a community, and so what I'm really pleased with, uh, sometimes good things come to those who wait, and sometimes process takes a long time. It's okay as long as you get to the right place, and I think the city's done a good job. I, I give them a lot of credit. Um, for having envisioned this and worked through all the issues and are, are really pushing forward. And I, I, I'm, I'm very, very excited about it. It's what attracted us to want to go after this. Uh, and it was a kind of full circle for me because I, I literally grew up four or five blocks away from the site. So when, when people said, what do you know of the site? I, I basically said pretty much everything. I, hmm. I grew up here. Uh, waterfronts changing in cities all over the world. Uh, initially, obviously, that's what sent you know centered around industry. That's that's what it was used for. We're seeing that transformation in many cities. Hamilton, though, still an extremely active port, still an extremely active industrial town. How do you balance the two? Well, I think actually it's the exciting part of it because I was really thinking about this site and and it's almost right on the border right on the line right in the midst of the transition between the yeah. industrial comp- part of the city and east and then west and and the idyllic you know the coots paradise the, the 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 beautiful you know it's 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 an incredible uh, uh sort of point in not only the geography of the city but in the cultural life of the city. But I, actually, I think it makes it even more exciting because some of the problems with other waterfronts is that all of the industrial uh, activity is just completely moved out. And so you have a complete transformation. Right. I think this is much more uh, really Hamilton style. It's grittier. Uh, you're in the midst of these very two different worlds. And, and Hamilton's always existed in the midst of those two different worlds. That, that's the beauty of the place. That's what people get energized about. That's what the North End is. Well, the North End is, yeah. totally. And, and it's, it's extremely, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a real place. I, I mean, I love what's happened on James Street. Um, 
James Street was where we would go shopping for food and all the mm. retail shops around James Street and it's co- completely transformed uh you know it's 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 got it's alive it's it's got a life and people are walking and hanging out and uh you know I've been many times uh and it's about connecting I think one of the key secrets is to connect the neighborhood to pure aid mm. so pure aid is not some isolated uh you know that's that's a that's a, that's a great point. Um, you know we've seen these pockets pick up in the city, and, and I mean that was an issue with with uh, LRT is is how do you connectivity and all of this? You've got to get people back down to the waterfront. In the old days, I remember story reading stories of people who came from the mountain, went down the incline railway, then got on a streetcar, took it all the way down to the shore, and then from there took a ferry to wherever. Um, this does really join all of those hubs back together, doesn't it? It does, and it's very, very pivotal. If you just pull back and you look at the location of Pier 8 in relationship to Burlington and the high-level bridge, and, you know, it's really, really at a critical key point. And so I think I think that when it becomes part of people's everyday lives uh, and, and that people are allowed to... Uh, enjoy uh enjoy the waterfront which which uh you know is is really going to be quite remarkable so i mean we we think we're doing something that is going to be a destination but we also know that it's going to be a place of living it's going to be a community for people who choose to live there and there's a lot of interest in it i've I've talked to a lot of people during uh and after this decision but there's a lot of interest in 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 wanting to live there people have said you know i'd love to be connected to this place so all of that's really really uh optimistic and positive uh, talk about some of the spin-off effects of putting this jewel there uh specifically when it comes to the north end because you look at between where the action is on james street and what happens down uh towards the waterfront and then the housing that's in between there that's going to completely transform that neighborhood in a decade or so do you think well 100 percent. i think that i think that you know a lot of care uh, and sensitivity has to go into how you know the community services are programmed, and the the the, the retail and food and beverage uh, enterprises that come to Pure Eight. I mean, there's a lot to discuss. I I, I think that the foundation for making uh, a very vibrant community is there, and I think the details are really really important to really understand everything uh, about what is actually being proposed and, and, and who the market is and how it serves the community. I think these are all top-of-mind questions for anyone who's lived in the North End. That being said, whenever we have these discussions, Bruce, we always hear the word gentrification. How, how, do, we, how do we balance this? Well, I think you have to constantly be focused on it because uh, any development will will make a change and you can say that it would be really good if the change allowed uh, everyone to be included as part of that change and that it lifts the values for everybody uh, and serves everyone I think that's the goal and I think everyone the city the local community for sure but our developer is very aware of of of, of really being very very careful and so the affordability uh, of uh, of residential accommodation is really important. I think ultimately, you know, the price point of 
of uh, restaurants or retail, whatever the services are, really, really important. And and to get it right, uh, but there will be a change. There's no question. As soon as you 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 make this great public investment and private investment, uh, it 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 will really um, increase value and it will draw attention and people to peer aid. You know, I I think everyone is aware of that. So it's really how is it done? Who's being consulted? You know, how are, how is the local community engaged? How does the city control? You know the process. You know how is the developer living up to the expectations, and uh, and and we'll get through this. And I think it'll be an amazing opportunity to show how you can actually make positive change in cities. What will the transformation be like as you go from that area and move towards, as you said, this this is pretty much uh, a dividing line between the residential or the new Pier Eight and and the industrial. Uh, core uh, right around Lakeport Brewery, the old Lakeport Brewery and such is where it seems to make that transformation. H- how do you go from one to the other there? How will, will it look like bang and then something completely different will be a, a gradual transition? Because you are, you're, you're, you're mixing this beautiful development right next door to what is the heart of, of Hamilton history. Well, if you look at our scheme, um, and first of all, you start with the, the street plan, try to create as much continuity directly into Pure 8 as possible so it's easy to get in and out. But but also the scale of our project, what we proposed uh, along the south edge is, is, is really low and it, it's more townhouse related and facing lower residential fabric. I think the points that you're making are are. are what I was talking about before is that how do you uh, stitch it into the fabric? And I think that's a whole area that, you know, we'd really like to, 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 to look at further. I mean, it's off of the actual site, but it's where all the connections actually have to be made. And so there are all sorts of things of, uh, you know, how, how do you get there, uh, you know, pushing a carriage or how do you get there cycling? How do you walk there? What are the uses? What's the sequence of experience as you move towards the water? Uh, what do you see first? I think all of these things are part of designing a great city and a great waterfront. That that we're we're very aware of that because if 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 it's not welcoming and connected, it's not going to be successful. It's just going to be an isolated uh, piece of uh, a waterfront development. It it must connect. Talk about the style of the and and obviously you know you, you can't let the cat out of the bag and uh, with all the details but you know it's interesting for example I was down near where the old Ream plant where the old stadium was supposed to be not too long ago and driving around and there's some very interesting townhouse type type complexes that are opening up but man they fit the area so well they don't look like a townhouse complex like you would see on the mountain or in Burlington or whatever they really sort of feel they they really sort of reflect that uh, warehouse kind of industrial core cool feel. Um, how important is that, that you're designing something that, like you said, has a piece of that grit uh, as well as a cool design? Well, I, I think that a lot, if you look at the details of, of our scheme, a lot of the uh, grade-related units are, are, are more industrial. They're not suburban, that's for sure. And and they also are are creating a, a kind of strong rhythm rhythm along uh, the street, and so we don't want this to be too cute or or it's, no. it's certainly if you look at the design it's very very contemporary and designed by different 
uh, architects on different blocks, but we were all very conscious of a, of, of a couple of things. One was the, the width of units, uh, the need to create identity for every single unit, the need to compose and to create use materials that would resonate. So we, we, we have some brick, but we have glass and steel and wood, and, and, but to use it in a way that's um, reference to industrial, but, but they are new residential. So there's a little bit of ambiguity in, in, in the expression, but we think what we've done is going to be uh, quite outstanding. And I have seen some of the uh, kind of conversions of industrial buildings into multiple units. I think people love those spaces. It's not the entire market, but there, there is a big market for that. Uh, I know some people from Toronto who have moved to Hamilton who are artists. And, and they have a kind of almost like a, a studio live work studio. Mm. I mean, they're go- they, they, they really they really want to be there and make their art and make things. And so I think that's all part of it. You want you want the curate to have a kind of buzz and and uh, a, a kind of lifestyle that that is not just living and consuming, but actually making things mm. and and being part of a community. So that that you could say, well, that's the new industry, right? It is uh, very cool. It's almost like a feel of the old Queen Street uh, in Toronto way back when. Uh, Bruce Kuabera has been with us, a partner at KPMB, and, of course, uh, working on Pier 8 and uh, creating magic and uh, the next phase of uh, Hamilton on the waterfront. Very exciting, Bruce. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Congratulations. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We're talking about the passing of Anthony Bourdain, uh, died at the age of 61 in an apparent suicide. Of course, earlier this week, fashion designer Kate Spade also uh, succumbed uh, the same way. When we have two high-profile cases like this, how does it change the discussion? And could we see this move the same way that we have the Me Too movement? Let's bring in Dr. Daniela Schreier, clinical psychologist out of Chicago, drschreier.com to find out more. She is with us now. Daniela, thanks so much for the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure, always. Hi there. Daniela, uh, two high-profile cases like this, uh, is it naive to think that one has anything to do with the other? Does this open up a broader discussion because they are high-profile cases? Well, I think the, uh, two, no two lives are alike, yeah? I think that the closeness in timing probably leaves many people breathless, even clients coming to see me or patients coming to see me. Well, two people in, in uh, one week, right? And both are Americans. Mm-hmm. I do think every life has its fate, and every life or every person has his or own struggle. And obviously, when we see people being very successful, they're out in the limelight. And I think especially in, in Anthony, uh, uh, Anthony's uh, case, he was so approachable, right? I'm not a follower of, of cooking, etc. but sometimes you, you're on the TV and he sits there. And you know, this would be a guy you can talk with uh, to about anything, right? Mm-hmm. Very, very friendly. And I think it's a shock for people to realize, well, there is this adventurous, um, outgoing person that has a lot of energy and brings such a lot, a lot of passion, right? And then they open up the news and it says, well, he took his own life. But, you know, I think where there's a lot of passion and there's a lot of energy and a lot of dedication, there's a lot of high, but there's obviously also often also quite some lows. And this is not what people see or want to see on the outside. 
that's the private struggle maybe of each life. You know, I remember the similar sorry, sort of sentiment uh, after the death of Robin Williams. Many thought, my goodness, look at this person. So much fun, so much full of life. How could this possibly be the case in, in the situation with all of these people? All very successful. And, and many would look at them to, to, and say, my goodness, why would you, why would you want to go in this direction uh, considering what you have? How do others view this? How does this help move the discussion forward that someone who we view as being having everything may have the same issues that we all have? Well, we all in some ways are restless spirits, right? And people look very uh, buttoned up on the outside. When they come into my office, they're buttoned up, they're Mm. successful. It doesn't matter if you're kind of an ordinary citizen or make a fortune, right? Or if you're a TV star, um, what you see on the outside is not what is behind the facade, and people must stop thinking that. Just because someone is very polished, or in, in, in the case of Anthony, who just seemed, seemingly he was himself, right? He presented as who he was, but we only see a small percentage of what people are about. Generally, people show what they want or allow us to want us to see or allow us to see. I think we're living in a very stressful society. We know that uh, suicide rates over the last decades um, actually went through the roofs in America. And I'm not now uh, applying that to these two last cases, but people have more stress than before. There are money issues. We are working longer and, and, and longer hours. There's less family support. There's less spirituality. Everything is more directed towards the outside rather than the inside. And uh, so with two high-profile, very successful people taking their own life, maybe we can finally talk about, you know, depression or sadness, which is a part of life and how we all can deal with it or not. Can we make this a Me Too move? Uh, a Me Too movement? I mean, we saw what happened uh, w- with that in Hollywood and such. C- can we see the same mobilization here and have these discussions? Well, but I think always my, my question is this, even though I'm a psychologist, right? If people ultimately want to go or want to die, okay, you will not prevent them from doing that. Mm. You can reach out to people when they are in a very fragile stage, state, of course, or when they are desperate in a moment, right? And there is a helping hand. Very often they take it and we say, no, it is not going to be that bad all the time, Okay. But now, if you really look into people who have planned suicide, um, often, for example, they came off a suicide attempt, and then their relatives feel that these people got better. They get on medication, they seemingly are happier, and they, they seem more peaceful. And often there are signs there. It's like they're more peaceful, they're giving belongings away, etc. And then all of a sudden, after a couple of months or six months, a year, the person takes his or her own life. And then people are very surprised. We thought he was getting better. Well, yep, he finally had maybe a little more strength. You thought he was getting better, but maybe he was just happier because he made the final decision. So I do think, yes, Me Too movement in terms of we all are having periods of sadness. There are people out there who are very sad and depressed. They need some help. But will we actually be successful in rescuing every life? Let's be real. We will not. Why do we not, or those who aren't suffering, why do we not understand the feeling of helplessness these people may have? Well, because there's a difference between the blues, right? Having the blues, being sad for a while or going through a breakup, 
that we say, well, there is light at the end of the tunnel. But if you're in a very deep depression, right? Number one, you don't think about, oh, uh, I am selfish as I'm killing myself. You just think very often, I'm a burden to others. There are different patterns even of suicide or not, right? Sometimes people are at a place where they say, well, it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't hurt me if a bus is hitting me. I'm, I would be happy it would be over. But there's no active suicidal thought or attempt, meaning that I would do it this and that way. But, but people see, in this case, we don't know what happened with Anthony, right? But he always says, well, um, he thought, he, he was sharing that in the past, sometimes he had uh, such ideas or maybe fleeting thoughts. Then he um, actually told us that he thought he has a lot of things um, to live for at this point. His daughter, he's very successful. Mm. But one of his quotes here is on having an agenda, right? He said, I don't have an agenda, but I do have a point of view, and it might change from minute to minute. So look at it this way. We don't know what happened. Sometimes people, you know, have a, a very bad day or very bad period, even though they are successful. Um, if alcohol comes, um, comes around or some drugs, right, sometimes that pushes people over the edge and they do what they generally wouldn't have done. Maybe they complete a suicide. Sometimes it's planned for a long time. And I tell you, it's interesting for me, it's the age range. If you look in all these age ranges, like Cage Bait, 53, he was 61, very often it's people around about 50. And I think uh, George Michael, right? Yeah. Wasn't it last year? Yeah. In yeah. The, if you look into Prince, you look into uh, Michael mm. Jackson, all these people were at that, that age span. And it's very interesting because being there maybe myself in, in, in the 50s, right, things change. We look at ch- things differently. We, over time, are no longer part of the young and active. Of course, we are young and active. Mm. But you notice that you're kind of more sidelined, right? And at, at, at some time, maybe people think, in this case, well, I had my highs, I had my high times. Maybe it is time to quit. Hmm. And I think it's very hard to understand, right, for people who look at, especially those successful figures, and they say, oh, we should have rescued this life. And I understand the thought behind it. But at the other hand, I think we need to be very careful in our society right we're living so much towards the outside what people see what's important our looks we can't be normal anymore we all need to have plastic surgeries Mm. or whatever is going on right um we can't be authentic we can't age peacefully in my opinion there's something attached to that and that might be also something you know that we can apply there Dr. Daniela Schreier has been with us, clinical psychologist out of Chicago, drschreier.com to find out more. Daniela, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend. And you too. Take care. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.